You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command. And it is Wednesday, May the 8th in the year of our Lord, 2019. And I'm telling you, there is so much to talk about that is non-Muller news. Gosh, we can't get them off of it. It's like they clench their teeth into it, both left and right. And there is so much going on in this world that we could talk about for hours upon hours and have amazing guests on immigration, national security, foreign policy, domestic policy, budget, healthcare, you name it, crime, things that we should all care about, but it's all Mueller all the time. We thought it would end a month ago. Well, it's still going strong. But we are not going to get distracted. We are going to continue giving you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. And part of that, part of that is focusing on the right issues. Um, there's a lot going on foreign policy-wise that I really haven't had a chance to address. And I figure today I'm waiting back on a lot of immigration news. I'm waiting to hear on a lot of different things. So hopefully we'll discuss that later this week, I wanted to take a pause and move around the world. And as always, of course, bring it back to our own national security, why we should care about these things, what we should care about, how we should approach them. You know, today is a very special day. It's the 74th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. 74th anniversary. It's truly hard to believe um, even at my young age growing up, you know, it's kind of anyone getting up there in age, retiring, was a World War II veteran. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II veteran, and now it, it, it's almost, you know, hard to find them. They're well into their 90s, d- diminishing every year. 74 years, and it's going to be the 75th anniversary next month, just about a month from now, of the D-Day landing. Omaha Beach, the sacrifice there. And what's interesting is if you think about it, from D-Day to VE Day was about 11 months. 11 months to free a continent, defeat Hitler. We had a nation that understood what it means to be America, what we were defending, what our strategic interests were and weren't, how to do it. And we got the strength of not just the political class and the military leadership, but the American people behind it. And we prosecuted that war with the just laws of war. And we were victorious with the hands of God. Today, we don't understand our head from our shoulder when it comes to strategic threats, what is and what isn't, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Because frankly, we don't understand what America is anymore. There's a lot going on in the world. There's... Last week, obviously, you had Venezuela, which seemed to be on the brink of a revolution, but it died down. We spoke a lot about that with our guest, Joseph Humeyer, our Latin American expert, last week. You have Israel in a protracted mini-war with, let's face it, Iran, but Hamas in Gaza, Hamas Islamic Jihad, 700 rockets fired into Israel over the weekend, There's a lot going on there. Deals with Qatar. Then you got America sending four bombers towards the waters, heading towards Iran to counter their threats. You have Trump ramping up oil sanctions and then today announcing a new set of sanctions on their metal industry. All the while, you have Russia lurking around the background. You have Europe on the precipice of cowering again and giving in to Iran's threats that if they don't play ball with them and defy the sanctions, they're going to ramp up their nuclear production, which they're doing anyway. And you have Secretary of State Pompeo yesterday cancel a meeting with Angela Merkel and fly off to Iraq to meet with 
the prime minister there, which you know is basically just a proxy of Iran, our government and military still doesn't want to um, shake the notion that they are not a friend. Um, but anyway, there is a lot going on, and frankly, they all tie together. To make sense of this, we're bringing in one of our new national security experts for the conservative conscience, Colonel Dan Steiner. We had him on last week to discuss what was going or two weeks ago to discuss the flare up at our border with the Mexican military um, detaining two of our soldiers for he, he's a 32 year Air Force veteran in the Texas Air National Guard. He commanded operations between or coordinated operations between NORTHCOM and um, the Texas military forces. He uh, served as Director of Homeland Defense Coordination for the Texas military forces beginning in 2003. So he brought him on for that. But in addition, you know, as I've gotten to know Dan a little better, um, he knows everything just about every part of the world. He's been in Latin America. He's been in Kosovo. And he's been all over the Middle East. He did a bunch of uh, stints for CENTCOM uh, following Desert Storm. He was in Desert Storm. Um, really has a tremendous amount of experience there. Uh, commanded uh, different air base ground defense units. So he's in the Air Force, but did a lot of ground defense for the air bases. Um, de- designed to prevent another Kobar Tower event. So this is really a guy I could go on and on about his his bio, but just wanted to let you know when he speaks about the Middle East, he really knows the players lived it. With no further ado, I've spoken enough. Dan, I am turning the show over to you. <laughs> well, that might be a bad mistake, Dan, but I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> well, well, let, let me just frame it, and I want where I want you to start, and then just go off on it. Um. You know, you and I obviously are, are strong believers in, you know, God blesses those who bless Israel, curses those who curse Israel, both from a biblical standpoint, a logistical, strategic standpoint. We're, we're pro-Israel. Um, but you have been, you know, in a lot of your social media postings, your blogs, you've been very critical of Israel's response and uh, uh, Pr- Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, handling of the situation. You had 700 rockets, unprecedented amount of rockets fired into Israel. And once again, they seem to go to the brink, do some airstrikes, make a lot of noise, but then Hamas seems to get what they want. In this case, more money transfers from Qatar, as well as um, some loosening of of importations at the Gaza coast, some raw materials like concrete that they're going to use for tunnels. They seem to get what they want, and they seem they might have a couple of commanders killed, which there's an unlimited supply of them. A couple buildings destroyed, but is that is it true that you kind of think Israel is being weak? Um, at least as of now, in their response to this attack. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, Dan. There, there's no bigger supporter of the IDF. Um, and quite frankly, if, if Benjamin Netanyahu could run for the president of the United States, I, I would vote for him. But, but I'll tell you what I think, I, what, they, what they're really up against. They realize they are in a protracted proxy campaign, and it is being pushed by Tehran, by the mullahs in Iran. And every single time, Someone in Tehran calls Gaza and says, hey, we need another round of rocket diplomacy to take place, either for a distraction or for some other purpose. The, the Israeli government looks at that event and says, we, we can't be goaded into a bigger fight. We, we have to be ready for the big fight. And it, it, if somehow the IDF has convinced their leadership that, a total engagement in Gaza will either result in something worse or distract them to the point that they can't be logistically and tactically capable of responding somewhere else, then we may be seeing the repercussions of that. But here's the price you pay when you do that. As you well know, in the 21st century, the battle is perception. In the world of social media and 24-7 news cable networks and everything that's out there 
for the last eight times in a row now, the people in Israel have been in fear. The people in southern Israel have virtually learned how to spend their life in their bomb shelters. And then the next thing you know, it gets called off. The Egyptians step in right on time. Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and everybody else stops, and they reach some so-called ceasefire agreement. Now, what happens is, during that moment in time, the campaign of we won, we won, we won, we brought Israel back to the table, launches right on time. So, so it's almost like from the minute the first sniper round is fired, which was a switch along the Gaza border that concerned me you know, almost a year ago when the first sniper showed up, to the point that they reach a ceasefire and all the rockets have flown, there's a phase of this project for them that deals with the public perception campaign of we brought Israel to the table. And and Israel knows this. Netanyahu knows this. And, And to us that know them and know the IDF, how incredibly frustrating it must be for them to sit there and not figure out a way to keep the next round of this happening and know the whole time that the whole thing is coming from commands from Tehran. That's, that's got to be driving them in the ditch. And I'll tell you, after this last round, I mean, 700 rockets fired, and I saw a couple reports, and I'm sure my old friends in the intelligence community know if it's true or not, but I saw a couple of reports about wire-guided weapons, you know, weapons, not, not just these cheap little hyper-4th yeah. of July rockets, but actually weapons that are s- smartly guided to its target, fired into Israel. Now, it's pretty hard for the IDF commanders along that line to sit there and marshal their guys for a second time in two weeks, and then get told, stand down, we've reached another ceasefire. So so there's ramifications for morale, not just within the IDF, the, you know, the, the frontline troops, the rank and file, but the citizens, and, and for those that lead the country. And I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of stunned that they just can't seem to get their hands around this. Uh, I, I know they're having a big parade here, you know, yesterday, today, and, and I, I saw this article, I think I sent it to you about, they're going to do a flyover salute to the people in southern Israel. Well, you know, and I was being kindly sarcastic when I posted, I'm not sure the people in southern Israel are keen to having anything flying over their head right now. I don't know how you lead a nation where a big hunk of the nation seems to live with PTSD. And I don't say that lightly because I have friends that suffer from that, from that illness. But if you think about it, if you live in Southern Israel, you suffer from PTSD. Your children do. Everyone does. You never know when this is going to start again. It's funny. I, I thought, I thought you were going to be all strategic on me, and and I think we want to get to that in a minute. But I'm because re- you just took it to where I want to take it first before going strategic. You're taking it culturally. One of the things I always do, and I've done this on the show a lot recently with Israeli elections, is I take Israel's culture and I try to compare it to America. And you know, they're always the canary in the coal mine. You know, politically, how much suicide does our nation have to do at the border? before it will become acceptable to actually bring the patent back uh, to our mindset, you know, like we spoke about last time, and treat our border like an invasion, and yada, yada. And we're like, you know, do we have to have rockets fired by the cartels into our communities? And and I, I thought Israel finally was at that point, you know, post-Intifada, where they're like, then I think to a certain extent, it's enough that they always elect, you know, a right-leaning government. They no longer elect leftists. But still, what's concerning me, and I think this is what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's this overton window of politics of what is acceptable. And what concerns me now in Israel, and I see you know, the same thing here and in all these Western countries, is that now it has become acceptable. You know, Beforehand, if you would say, okay, instead of four or 10 rockets, there's going to be 700 guided rockets you know, within two days 
oh my gosh, no, that can't be. Now, ICE, ke- um, not, um, uh, Hamas keeps pushing back that Overton window of what they're willing to tolerate, what their political leaders are willing to tolerate. So to me, this tells me Hamas is like, all right, so next time we could do, do 900 rockets. And you know what? Maybe we might even do it on command from Iran while they're opening up a northern front, which is the real you know, threat. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the analogy almost of psychologically the death of a thousand cuts. I, I don't know how you convince the people of southern Israel that there's light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how you do that. Gaza is one thing. It is a forward fire base for the mullahs. That's what it is, Dan. Yes, it's a community of two million people shoved into a small piece of property. And that's the perfect environment for asymmetric terrorists to work in. And that's what they're doing. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. And, and, you know, the left-leaning media, the first picture I noticed Saturday, after it's been going on about 18 hours, I think I, I texted you and told you this. The first picture I noticed that the BBC actually put up was a Palestinian child standing on top of a pile of rubble. Now, I don't know what the out is for the people of southern Lebanon. And so at some point in time, what's the out for our part of the nation that lives on our southern border? You know, when D.C. sits there and says it's not a big problem, and people on our southern border go, well, hell, the new norm is I can't walk on my ranch. I can't drive down yep. certain roads. I can't go out at night. You know, yep. what becomes the new normal? And I'm afraid and, and, the new and, normal And this scares the hell out of there. me. Dan, this scares me, um, again, to bring it back to America, because I'm thinking, like, I, I literally just spoke with uh, Lincoln County Sheriff, Lincoln County, New Mexico. He said exactly what you just said about the ranches and the increased crime, the burglaries they're having. They don't have the direct dump into their county directly. It's more closer to El Paso and Las Cruces. But, you know, that the, the, that Overton window is getting pushed. And I'm thinking, like, OK, maybe when it's 200,000 uh, apprehensions a month, when the cartels start doing this. But I look to Israel and they seem to be a little bit less politically correct than we are. And you have 700 freaking rockets, and they still won't treat it like an invasion and act accordingly. I mean, what has gone on with Western civilization? Well, I, I can tell you it, it is probably a terribly ugly conversation in Netanyahu's war room with his IDF commanders. Now, you've got your IDF generals that sit in there and say, okay, sir, we're, here's the... Here's the projected price we will pay to do a 2000 or, a, you know, do another event where I think it was 2004. Where we, we could just push to the water. You, you just you push to the water, try and take everything out of the way and then turn the property back to the people. Well, that that proves them that doesn't work. But there's a price to pay to do that. And it seems Israel's leadership, and if not Israel's leadership, those that Israel leans on. And this is where the story, you know, I hinted to you this morning, we may hurt some feelings here today. It, it, it seems to me that there may be an ungodly amount of pressure on Netanyahu not to do that by the person that he claims is his biggest friend, and that's our president. If, oh, boy. If, if his, if Boy Wonder, his son-in-law, oh, has some magical plan to bring peace to that region, which they openly admit probably isn't going to go anywhere. And the theory is, look, you you can't go full bore before we at least put the plan on the table and let the Palestinians vis-a-vis Tehran reject it. Then Menachem, what happens? You you got Netanyahu with his hands tied behind him. Oh, no. Are are you suggesting we're headed back to you know, because at least publicly, they haven't, you know, done the Bush administration crap. And certainly Obama, both sides need to stop garbage. You know, publicly, their statements have been supportive. But you're saying you're concerned privately that it's what we don't because it's it, I, just to add to that. And I'm curious if you could comment on this. Um, despite 
the welcome change in sentiment, not just since Obama, but really the last couple of administrations where they refused to endorse the two-state solution and this other stupid stuff. But still, if you notice, like, for example, if you look at what you don't see, to this day, Netanyahu still will not annex even greater Jerusalem, much less other parts of Judea and Samaria, which everyone thought would be a no-brainer once Trump became president. So are you thinking that there's some quiet pressure being put on him? Well, you know, Dan... Our, our president walked in to D.C. on a campaign of I'm going to go drain the swamp. Then you get into the swamp and you start playing whack-a-mold. And after two years of playing whack-a-mold and everybody in that swamp from both sides coming at you, I don't know what part of his mindset starting to change. But there's a reason Israel will not deal with Gaza. And this, and this next fire mission is going to come. From Gaza, and and I know one of the things you want to talk about is some of the circumstances in, in Iran that may bring that next mission around rather quickly. But something's wrong that they can't solve this puzzle, and I'm not sure the people of Israel understand the price they're paying because no one wants to really explain to them why they won't do what they need to do. I mean, you, you, you watch a mechanized unit come down the highway, you know, an armored brigade, and they come marching down the highway and they pull into their marching areas along the border with Gaza. And you think, okay, this is it. We're, we, we, I am not going to have to sleep with my children in a bomb shelter again this week. We're, we're going to get rid of this. And then they sit around for a while and leave. And then the rockets fly again. The brigade comes back. You think, okay, this is it. This time we're going to do it. And it doesn't happen. Pretty soon, when you see that brigade coming down the road, you don't believe anything's going to happen. And, and now you've attacked the issue of trust of the people in southern Israel with the IDF. And, and so this, this unintended consequence of being so reluctant, you know, this, you and I talked before about this whole issue in that we have in the Western cultures now, we have this casualty aversion. You know, when we hear on the news that 10 people died in a IED event, that's tragic. I, I, I've been there, done that. But it seems like we have leadership that says that there's no comprehension of 500 killed today, 1,500 killed. You know, there's no Irojima. There's none oh, yeah. of the resolve to say this is going to be really, really ugly. I get it, but it has to happen. And if your enemies believe that, then there's only one thing they're going to do, and that is they're going to keep punching because they don't have that resolve. There's nobody in Tehran that cares about the death count in Gaza. None. Absolutely <laughs> zero. Well, that that's what concerns me, that— you know, it used to be in the time of World War II, the understanding was you have a sovereign nation. If you're the government of that nation, your responsibility is solely to your people and your people only. Okay? That that nobody, none of your citizens should be sacrificed. The goal, number one, is they're protected. Now, from there on, I'll see, you know, try to minimize how many of the other side I kill needlessly, but I will never sacrifice um, my side. But now we see that we literally will get our soldiers killed, we'll get our civilians killed. There's a level of tolerance that we will put up with so as not to have too many civilian casualties of their side. Um, and it looks like Israel is, you know, suffering from that as well. So, you know, let's just zoom this out. I don't want to spend you know, too much time just on this point, but to move on. So we should care as Americans for a number of reasons and another number of reasons anyway, but this in particular is completely related to our foreign policy, if not more so than Israel, the impetus for this whole thing. And it gets back to the fact that we're crushing them with sanctions. Could you just give a little briefing on what is going on with the sanctions with Iran's threats our moving of the bombers into the region, what sort of assets we're putting there, what does that tell you? Where do you think this is headed? Yeah, let, let me try and tie this together, the, you know, the frustrations that are taking place in Israel, the quagmire they're caught in. 
and why somebody might be trying to explain to Netanyahu there is light at the end of the tunnel. If let's assume that we are putting the pressure on Netanyahu not to go in and occupy Gaza, or not to go in and take out Hezbollah in southern uh, Lebanon. Let's assume all that, just for the sake of trying to draw an analogy here. Let's assume that that request is based upon the fact that, like we did in Desert Storm, we've looked to the Israelis and say, look, if you will stay out of this, we will deal with this. We, we have a way of dealing with this situation that will ultimately bring about the objective that we both need, and that is the mullahs out of power in Iran and a neutralization of the threat coming out of Gaza. Because quite frankly, without Tehran, there is no threat in Gaza. Now, for the Israelis to sit back and listen to that and say, okay, I, I get it. I, I'm going to have to sit here and eat this. And, and try and let my public understand that we're, we're doing the right thing. But you damn well better have a plan to make this quick. Because logic says, if you're having that conversation with someone, and eventually that person's comment is, okay, I'm going to give you two X to make that happen. And then I'm going to do what I need to do. Now, we went through this with Desert Storm. When, you know, when Saddam started throwing scuds at Israel, Israel was prepared to jump into the war. And, and with the relationships the Israelis had with the Arabs back then, we knew that was going to be disastrous. So we sat down with them and said, if you'll just hold on, we'll shift fire, we'll get out into western Iraq, and we'll neutralize all these scud sites. And we did. I was with the A-10 units that did that. Mm. You know, we, They went from supporting close-line defense units to going out scud hunting. And, and then they did that again it, in 2003 as a preemptive measure, right? Or uh, Correct. So Let's assume that's all taking place. So what do you predicate that all on? Well, you know, here we go. We, we, we looked at this ridiculous joint comprehensive plan of action that the Obama administration came up with. And Trump walked in and said, this thing's stupid. It's a, it's a bad idea. We're out of it. Knowing that that would set things in motion with the Iranians to say, uh oh, you know, there's a new sheriff in town in D.C., and, and we've got to try and figure out, a, can, is he a four-year wonder, or do we have to really get ready for him coming after us? Lately, it, it appears to me the mullahs sitting there in Tehran have become not only worried about Trump and his attitude towards what's really wrong with the Middle East. It's Iran. It's the leadership in Iran. That's what's really wrong. He, they're also starting to get worried about their own people. You know, we, we missed, Obama missed, a golden opportunity in 2009 to take the mullahs out. The people of Iran, the Green Party movement, that, 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 there was the pre-Arab spring that could have pushed the mullahs out of power. Yeah, whoa, 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 wait, wait, Colonel, I got to stop you there. I want you to answer a very, and I'm sorry about that. I want you to answer a very important question about that point about regime change in Iran. In case we have some skeptics. You know, I because I, I myself have, you know, kind of acclimated my audience to the notion that the neoconservatives have moved in the wrong direction, that in general, all these Arab Springs and uprisings and even in Venezuela, like we saw, it's not worth our time. And they're not just worth it. There's not much we can um, do with it. W could you explain to our audience why Iran is different and why not only would it be worth it, but it's doable to overthrow them and what you would have filling that vacuum, we wouldn't have to have another Iraq over it. Right. So if you have a regime somewhere and that regime is causing global impact to the, your world, your Western world, your, your, the way the Christian world operates on a day-to-day -day basis, if you have a regime that believes that that regime and its religious background is going to eventually influence the rest of the world, then the price you may have to pay to remove that regime is legitimate. When you've got a despot idiot sitting somewhere that has a limited capability to cause you problems, there probably isn't enough firepower there to justify going in and taking him out. You know, I was never a big believer in what we did in Panama. I think 
Panama was an issue that just somehow it just kind of happened. But Iran is a totally different story. You know, this this jar of a, we have to defend against a, an Iranian nuclear capable nation. I got I got bad news for people. If you really know what Iran's up to, and you know the relationship between Iran and North Korea, and it's all out in open source, you can go read about it. The Iranians have a functional nuclear weapons program. It's with the North Koreans. There's a reason the North Koreans and the Iranians worked on those weapon systems together. Now, where that weapon gets tested, does that really matter to the mullahs? If they had a joint program and the North Koreans have functionally fired a weapon, then (laughs) I'll argue with you, the Iranians already are a nuclear power. The only trouble they have is trying to get those particular elements back into their country, and the people won't allow that. But the short answer is, yes, it is worth it to us in the Western world to do whatever we can in our power to relieve Iranian people from a group of despot old men in Tehran. You know, the fact of the matter is, Dan, he, they're not popular. The people of Iran just drowned in a flood, and Tehran looked at them like, hey, you're just cattle. Swim for the shore. So there, there is some timing issues here. There are opportunities here. And if we use them, like today they get out there pulling out of part of this, you know, the JCPOA craziness, if we find a window of opportunity to do something strategic against them, then maybe that's about to happen. And, and I told you before, I don't think there's any coincidence to the fact that Trump and Putin talked last weekend. And that wasn't just about Venezuela. Venezuela doesn't have the boil point yet of making the two of them really come to an argument over the phone together. But Iran does. And if our intelligence community spotted Iran making a decision to pull out of that agreement to pressure the EU for more concessions, and that decision was probably made a couple weeks ago in conversations, and SIGINT picked up on it, and the Israelis picked up on it. And so someone sits down at the president and goes, it looks like the Iranians are going to pull out of this. And Trump says, I told them they can't do that. I want options. And so you start putting courses of action in front of the president. That's what you do. And if one of those courses of action is to, even if it's a temporary delay, a five-year delay in their capacities to do what everybody doesn't want them to do, build nuclear weapons, and that's the one the boss picks, then that's the one you get ready for. And that that creates a force package issue. What type of force package does that course of action call for? And so people out there look and they say, well, it's only four bombers and it's only one aircraft carrier. It's not like we're going to war with Iran. Well, it depends on what the targeting package is. What is the objective? What are you trying to achieve? Are you sending a message? Are you neutralizing a program temporarily like the Iranians or the Israelis did with Syria several years ago? So are we in the midst? Are we actually watching the U.S. prepare itself to take action against the Iranians, it's, it's pretty possible. I, I'd say it's probably on the 60-40 scale right now. And that's probably why Trump and Putin had the discussion last week. And make no doubt about it, I've told you this before, there is no bromance between the Iranians and the Russians. There, there isn't. So, so could you it's speak not to that? Could, could you speak to that a little bit? Why you think that the, the Russians are souring on Iran now? Well, the, the Russians grabbed a hold of the Iranians for one reason, to counter us. And it's been going on for a while. So and, why would you you've heard now? me talk you, you, You've heard me talk before about what is it that really upsets Putin? It's Europe. It's, it's the NATO advance into Europe, Eastern Europe, into the old Soviet buffer zone. And so in this game of chess, where you apply pressure, I apply pressure, they pick up yet another proxy fighter in the Middle East, which is Iran. They know we can't stand the country because of the leadership there since 40 years ago. And the next thing you know, you've got this temporary bromance going on. But to Moscow, 
to the to the folks that call the shots in Russia, they're a they're a puppet. They're a proxy fighter that can be manipulated into making us do things. Now, at the moment in time where that no longer brings them value, they don't care. There's nobody in Moscow that cares about the future of Iranian college students. This is all a game of leverage for them. And if somehow we can convince, if Trump can convince Putin, look, I've had enough. I can't keep the Israelis in the box anymore, and you can't either. Firebase Gaza and Hezbollah and southern Lebanon are going to get whacked. And if that draws Iran into a war with the Israelis, you and I better be prepared to keep that as calm as possible. So why don't we just deal with this on our own terms? If there's some version of that going on, whether the Russians completely agree or disagree, they could disagree, but not find enough value in stopping it or being involved in it that we go ahead and do it. Something has the mullahs scared. The floods upset their people. The financial crisis now of the second round of this oil embargo, you know, the actual, you're not going to get any money off the oil program, has scared them. This whole issue with moving IRGC units out of Syria and Iraq, moving Al-Quds units out of Syria and Iraq, trying to fool the IRGC underneath the Iranian military, something's afoot with them. And rest assured, the IC, the collective IC, us and our allies, they have a pretty good idea what that is and how desperate the mullahs have gotten. And if they've gotten desperate enough that they're getting ready to do some type of action that we won't tolerate, the president won't tolerate, then I think you have all the news jumps that you've had this week. I, I also think that's why you got rocket diplomacy last week from Gaza again. Is But, you know, that's the mullahs push button. And, and so... Yeah, there's a much more larger strategic issue here. You're never really going to get Moscow to calm down until this issue of NATO and Europe calms down. Why should they? How do you convince the Russian people that that's something they don't need to worry about? And all the time, Dan, this is bubbling, boiling, and sitting there, and you know where my heart lies on this. All the time we're doing all this, over the horizon, sits the Chinese. So uh, that was and my it, next question, literally, right that, right, right there. Is that their lifeline? So if Moscow kind of sours on them, we choke them off with oil. I'm already seeing, gosh, what 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 is it this um Chinese company they're dealing with now for oil? Is that their lifeline? Well, let, let's say you sit down and have a powwow. Uh, let's say you have a three-way powwow. Trump, Putin, and the emperor of China. That, that's just what I call him now. So the czar, the emperor, and the president sit down and have a talk. And in that talk, they say, look, what you guys really need out of this piece of property over here is for the fuel to continue to flow. You know, it's kind of like the doom. You know, the spice must flow. Okay, as long as you convince the two of them that that at the end of the day, all that's still going to go on, much like we did with Iraq. At the end of the day, we're still going to get the oil out of Iraq and onto a pipeline somewhere. If you can do that, to the point that they think, okay, I don't agree with you, but I'm not going to fight you over it. Then you've got the next step you need to take the action that you need. I, I tell you, when I look at this strike package that they've talked about, that's a strike package. That's exactly what it is. That's not a preparation for war. That's not a buildup for Desert Storm or Iraqi freedom. It's a strike package, much for like what? we already used in for, the last two or three years. Well, what would it be used for? What would you... Uh, you got two sets of targets that really make them hurt. You, you go in there and you smack the command and control of the IRGC and the Al-Quds force, which I, I think that's why they went into hiding two weeks ago, or you go nail their nuclear weapons program. You don't really care if they're going to back out of a program that you just set back 10 years. So at that point, is there a tipping point? Does someone, do, do the youth of Iran say, hey, look, the mullahs are just, they're on their knees now. Let's go. Let's do a 2009 and let's march on Tehran and let's see if the rank and file of the Iranian regular army stands with the mullahs or stands with us. 
You know, there, there's no love between the Iranian regular army and the IRGC. That, that, that's, that's ludicrous to believe that's true. And anybody that follows the Iranian military knows that when you tell the IRGC they're going to fold up underneath the, the Iranian army, it's kind of like telling the Marine Corps they're going to fold up underneath the Coast Guard. Now, no slight to the Coast Guard, but in the Battle of Egos, that's exactly what you're telling those IRGC commanders. So I don't know what made the mullahs think that was the right thing to do. And I noticed they had to relieve several commanders when they said it. But yep, I think there's a strike package. I think there's a final decision point to be made on, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And Gaza last week was, a, was an attempt to distract all of that, because I think the Iranians see it coming. And so where are we going? You know, what, what's going to happen? Are the Chinese going to step in and save the Iranians? Hell no. They're, they're, there's no interest in doing that. They're so deep down the road with building the, the one, bro, one bridge, one road initiative, uh, the South China Seas. Sure. Uh, that, that, that's just, you know, background noise to them. And the mullahs know that. If they, don't like the, they don't like Moscow, and Moscow doesn't like them, but they need Moscow. If Moscow's willing to turn their head and let something happen to them, then bad days are coming for them. You're saying it's a matter of how badly we want it. How badly do we want to finally um, foster a regime change in Iran? Commensurate with that is how much Russia and China will back down. They're not too big to fail for them. As long as they know we're on the fence, they'll be strong about it and say, hey, you better not mess with them. But the minute they know we've crossed that point of no return where we're going after them, you're saying they're just it's just not worth the trouble for them. It's not. I mean, Moscow or Beijing is not going to have World War III over Iran. It's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. Now, can we continue to tell the Israelis, you just got to eat these 700, 900,000 rocket attempts while the EU tries to negotiate away in their Teletubby way with the mullahs <laughs> in Iran? Now, that, that's not going to happen. You're only going to keep Netanyahu in the box so much longer. Well, so well, but that's my question. It is, is it the Teletubbies or is it a hawkish way? In other words, is it, oh, I don't want you to screw up uh, Jared's nerdy peace plan. Or do you think that, no, it was more like with, with the Iraq war, hey, no, just hold it because we're going we're gonna to directly do a decapitation strike on them. When I say, say that, I don't necessarily mean that we're going to necessarily directly strike Iran, but we're going to leverage all the tools of statecraft, sanctions, the internal pressure that's already bubbling that we think we can push them over the fence and that's where this this strike package comes into play. Well, if if you know the son-in-law's plan is going to be dead on arrival, but you have an opinion that we at least have to put on the table because I said I was going to put it on the table. You know, one of these campaign promises that he's had, hey, I'm going to put a, the deal on the table. He's also the guy that says sometimes deals just don't work. You know, he's a businessman. If he puts it out on the table and the Palestinians spit on it, then he can step back from the table and say, I can't help you. You know, I, I tried and you're on your own. And then when 700 rockets come from Gaza, now the IDF gets turned loose. So, you know who understands that? The mullahs understand that. They know probably the minute they say no to that plan, all hell may break loose. That's if they get there. Because if they've been stupid enough this week to actually try and plot some type of imminent action against us, which a lot of the people are rumoring that's true out there. Wait, 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 what do you mean by how, that? Well, you know, they're like cl closing today, the Straits of Hormuz. Right. The, they started out with open threats, but then there's been all these pompo and keep people saying, well, we now have credible information about imminent threats against U S assets and, and whatever in the theater. Well, that's the kind of verbiage you use before you go swack something. I, I've heard that time and time again. So if they've done that, if the Iranians have really done that, then they've done it out of desperation, complete desperation. Because there, There's no way out of this for the Moors. I, I mean, there, there's no way they see the sun come up some morning and they're still the leaders of Iran and everything else has calmed down. So I, I think... You know, the most dangerous time for an animal is what? When they're backed in a corner. 
And I think that's exactly where they are. I think Netanyahu is sick to death of having to deal with fire-based Gaza, and he's willing to listen, but he wants to see us say there's light at the end of the tunnel. And if we don't produce it, we're going to have to turn him loose. And at the end of the day, the Russians and the Chinese aren't even going to lift a finger. They, they, they'll make some press announcements. You know, they'll, they'll do the standard, uh, we deplore, blah, 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 blah. They'll go to the U.N., they'll give a good speech at the U.N. But in reality, even the Arabs don't want the mullahs there anymore. You know, I sent you a thing yesterday about the, the Saudi Arabian newspapers, some of the editors over there writing stories sympathetic to the casualties that the Israelis suffered in last week's attacks. Now, I, I never thought right. I'd live to, to see that. It's unbelievable. Yep. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because... They know there's no plan for the Israeli flag to fly over Riyadh. But there is a plan for the Persians to rule all the Arabs. And so, unlike 1967, unlike all the other things that Yasser Arafat tried to pull off, Nasser and the rest of them, we've reached a point where the Arabs are so tired of, of of what's been going on in Iran for the last 40 years that they're going to sit back and watch it happen. They're not going to. They're not going to join in any battle. They're. They're not even going to condemn Israel for what they do. Oh yeah. So, uh, how do you know? How does this all play out? I mean, you you can't let Israel continue to take the pounding that they're po- taking, and and allow their people to keep trust in their government and their military. You, you got to get past that. So let's move in some of the other players here. What do you take of Pompeo's emergency turnaround from he was going to go to Germany, meet with Merkel, cancels it, goes to meet with the Iraqi prime minister yesterday? Well, well, you know, why why do you go see a guy in a country that you know doggone good and well is a puppet of the Iranians? And, and that's what he is. And, and, and we all know it. And the, the concept that he's any kind of a true ally to us is ridiculous. The guy sits in Baghdad and he's a puppet of the Iranians. So if you need to go give a message, then you go to that puppet guy and say, hey, look, here's what may be about to happen. And you just need to sit tight. I don't, I don't want to hear anything out of you. You know, uh, Iraq couldn't stop us from flying through their airspace if they wanted to. Uh, Iraq couldn't stop us from doing hot turns at Iraqi Air Force bases for whatever amount of time it would take to do that. If if we go in there and we're striking IRGC units that have pulled back and tried to hunker down inside Iraq somewhere, you know, and this goes on the targeting thing of are we after the nuclear program or are we after the IRGC and Al-Quds forces? that are, you know, driving Syria and everybody else crazy. So talking to Iraq yesterday makes you want to believe that this issue is about things that are inside Iraq that may get hit. And and knowing full well that when you tell them that, that pipeline message is going straight back to Tehran. And so you sit back and watch to see if somebody moves. Does that unit jump up (laughs) and start moving again? So that's a clever game. Uh, do, do you mean right the same now. the same uh, units we were fighting together with to bail them out from ISIS? Yeah, I, I don't want to go there. Okay. I, I mean, that's just <laughs> there are some noises in this world that just make you pitch your head like a dog. But... <laughs> well, look, it's better to write the ship now. New administration. I mean, look, let's let's head in the right direction. Okay, so w- one other player here that we'd be remiss not to talk about is Qatar. They seem to be the bad guys behind everything. So Israel agrees as part of the ceasefire to allow Qatar to transfer money to Hamas. Qatar very much seems to be the glue of global jihad where they sit in the background and, you know, they don't have like, you know, a military marching around like the IRGC, but they're the money bags and they fund kind of like, you know, they are the nexus of the Muslim brotherhood Hamas where they're, they're Sunni Muslims, but they fund both Sunni terrorism and then have the relationships with Iran. That's kind of that whole Turkey, Hamas, Qatar, Iran nexus there. Why? Uh, well, it's a stupid question why we've been dealing with them until now. But are there any signs that as part of this aggressive approach and we, you know, we're seeing possibly with Iraq, 
like you just said, maybe preparation to strike IRGC targets there, sending the bombers to the waterways towards the Straits of Hormuz um, with the aircraft aircraft carrier, really tightening sanctions. Are there any signs that we're doing anything to Qatar, or do they continue to get a free pass? And and here's where some of the heads in CINCOM will probably catch on fire if they ever heard me say this. (laughs) The the, the problem with Qatar is Qatar began almost like the Hatfields and McCoys. There, there's just bad blood between the bloodline of the leadership in Qatar and the bloodline of the leadership in Saudi Arabia. They, they, you know, it's a part of the world where pettiness over bloodlines and tribal beliefs and tribal leaders and who's top dog. Qatar can't stand the fact that Saudi Arabia is still top dog in the Middle East. And so you, you, you got a guy over there that throws his own dad out of power so he can become in power, and he immediately becomes buddies with the mullahs in Tehran. Now, that's an ugly statement, but it's true. And it's ugly because we're sitting in Qatar. You know, we, we, Sincom Forward is sitting in Qatar. We have a, a, a huge operating base in Qatar. And we swear in D.C., I don't think Trump believes it, but everybody else in D.C. swears that Cutter is somebody that we have to hold on to. Well, holding on to Cutter is like holding on to Turkey. It, 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 that's something that just mystifies me is, you know, you got the Sultan over there thinking he started up the new Ottoman Empire. And we just we're just desperate to keep Turkey happy for oh. some reason. Uh, and yeah, so the problem with Cutter is it starts out with blood and then with blood, it turns into, you know, royal rivalries. And then they jump in bed with the Iranians, and now the Iranians got them because they don't have the money. They got Qatar spending the money on the terrorists that drive us crazy. Sounds stupid, but to Dan Steiner, that's exactly what's going on. But but, but my point is, if if I'm the president, if I'm the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, isn't – I mean, you and I both know that the way to win asymmetrical warfare in this era has nothing to do with – taking land because we don't want their land. It's tribal warfare. It gets us in trouble. We don't want another Iraq. It's leveraging the soft power and terrorism, whether it's Iran, whether it's Sunni terrorists, it's all money. You need money. You need, you need money for your operations. So isn't the money ultimately coming from Qatar and shouldn't we be directing all of our soft power on them? If we really want to, and the mullahs? We, we could, Dan, we could flip a switch. And a bank, no bank in Qatar would work. Now, the second and third order effects of doing that would probably, you know, upset a lot of people because we, we have our, <laughs> we have our fingers, our corporations and our banking systems had their finger in things. We could shut money off from Qatar in a heartbeat. We could allow someone else to assume power in Qatar. You know, the Saudi Arabians, I'm pretty sure we talked them out of a coup in Qatar just a couple of years ago. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know why the definitive answer of let's just leave the Qatar thing alone continues to be the main topic in D.C. Uh, you know, I have, I have my suspicions about corporations and yes. the amount of money and blah, yes. blah, 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 blah. But Qatar is important to the Iranians as far as a funding stream, like you said, but tactically, strategically to us, you know, if, if we have to, we can, we can jump out of that installation and cutter and go back to Prince Sultan, PSAB, we call it, in Saudi Arabia pretty quickly. I guarantee you there's still a plan on the books to do that if we wanted to. That, that, that's what I, I understand. Mean, you know, everyone tells me, you know, Daniel, we can't do this because we have our base there. Well, why do we need bases there? Well, uh, Afghanistan. Well, why are we in Afghanistan? Well, that's a different story. That's a different can of worms. But you're right. I mean, why can't, as far as Turkey and Qatar is concerned, why can't we, you know, for allies with Saudi Arabia, and there's been a permanent change there, why can't we move it to Saudi Arabia? And why can't we move the Inserlec base in Turkey to Romania or Bulgaria or one of these other countries and kill two birds with one stone, you know, get out of Turkey and let them die, and then also stick it to the Russians? Um and then have our cake and eat it too and never be beholden to them, but still have geographically. I mean, this is, I'm speaking out of turn here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming geographically we would still, you know, be close enough for our air assets, right? 
Well, yeah. I mean, I kind of chuckled the other day when I heard this. Four B-52, a B-52 strike force is being sent to the theater. Well, here, here's the real news, and a lot of folks out there know this. You can launch a B-52 from anywhere in the United States and conduct a mission. You don't have to take four B-52s, take them over into the theater, land, do something, get ready, and then go do a mission. They can leave Louisiana, fly to the target, release the cruise missiles, fly to the forward operating base, Cutter, you, you name it, uh, PSAB in Saudi Arabia, anybody that's got a big enough runway, land, put new missiles on, put fuel in the thing, take off, and let them go again. It's not like those bombers are going to fly. You know, it's not Dr. Strangelove. You don't have to fly over the target anymore. They're launching platforms. Some of the bigger lifters, you know, are, are launching platforms. So it, it was kind of funny. Everybody got kind of caught up on this. Oh, there's four more B-52s going over there. Well, there's some already over there. You go over there, you do your mission, then you land somewhere forward and continue your operations. But, you know, who knows? It, it depends on what course of action they put in front of the president that he's saying, okay, on my command, this is what we're going to do. And then the secretary of state runs over there and tries to, you know, clear the way before it all starts to take place. But Cutter's not a player in that. I mean, it, it, walking away from Cutter's easy. Walking away from Turkey, I don't care what anybody says. Like you said, that's easy. We can walk away from Turkey in a heartbeat. And I tell you, the day we say we're going to walk away from Turkey, they'll be just like the Philippines. You need to get out of here. We leave, and the next thing you know, they're screaming for you to come back. Because if <laughs> anybody thinks there's true bromance between the Russians and the Ottomans, they don't oh, know no. history. And, and that's what bothers me, that we operate. In other words, the smart set in foreign affairs in Washington operates under the universe of where we live now with the cascading effects of their stupid policies that they project those realities on our proposals. But if you look at the world dynamically, if we would actually just do it, I mean, the classic example is moving the Jerusalem embassy. Anyone would have said for 30 years, oh my gosh, the world's going to die if you do that. And, and it's a joke. You just do it. And I think what you're, you've described for this past hour is that at least the signs of strength that Trump has exhibited until now has demonstrated that even Russia and China are kind of like, yeah, they're going to back off a little bit. They'll be tough if we're weak. If we get tough, you know, unless it's something that they really have to go to war over, they're not going to go to war with us, which gets me to my final question. Between Qatar, Turkey, all this garbage, is this really just about the military-industrial complex and some of the inveterate um, interests? Nothing to do with disagreements over strategic vision, but it's more just money and and connections, the Qataris are connected to everyone in America. Um, let me just put one point to that. General Dunford just put out a statement. Um, well, not put out a statement. I believe it was in a Senate hearing. He told senators today that, quote, we'll need to maintain a counterterrorism presence as long as there's an insurgency in Afghanistan. Yeah, well, a quick, ugly story. And I love my Army brethren to death. I I took, I'd take a bullet for them, but, but here's the ugly truth. If, if you're a service and you see another service conduct a major operation and your service was barely part of that operation, I'm, I'm talking about Desert Storm, the most terrifying thing to you when you go to Congress for additional funding is that you don't show relevancy. Now, I will tell you that when we were putting the Iraqi invasion plan together. I sat on the planning team in the blue cell, the Air Force side, and we were basically told by a bunch of Army brethren, this will not be a desert storm. This will not be an air campaign. Because how in the hell do you go tell Congress you need billions and billions of dollars if another branch of the service can effectively neutralize your enemy? And, and and I'm so Dan, I'm so tired of doctrine that's written 400 years ago. You know, I hear all these. I used to get roll my eyes and go, well, you know, the, the art of war, Sun Yat Tzu. Okay, got it. And then you know, von Clausewitz. And I had to read about this guy von Clausewitz all the way through my professional military education. You know, from second lieutenant all the way up to colonel. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. I, I, 
that, that's not how we need to do business nowadays. We, uh, nation state building, building roads and dams and bridges and schools and water plants in Afghanistan for, for what? Why? Why would we do? Let's build those in West Virginia. Let's build, and, and, let's, and again, Colonel. Let, let's just have the contrast. Iran has been behind every bad thing against America and our allies for forty years. They got Hezbollah in our yard, operatives in America. The Taliban are nothing. They're but a bunch of mud hut munchkins. Um, they're they're the fathers, husbands, sons, and whatever of the Afghani people in the tribal warfare. They can't hurt us if we're not there. They have no, you know, global network like like Hezbollah does. Um, it happened to be the sand dunes where the 9-11 attackers, uh, you, you know, trained. But there, there's no, I, I just don't get it. Well, I, 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 the money we've spent on Afghanistan, I think one of your one of your followers said, you know, what what's the definition of victory in Afghanistan? And here's my answer. The definition of victory of Afghanistan should have taken place 17 years ago. We should have gone in there, pounded without restrictions, anything in that country, like we initially did for the first month or so, and then simply said, we're leaving. And if we determine that a threat to our country or our allies came from this region, we will be back and it will be worse. Now, I'm going to mow the lawn. I don't care about your power plants, your sewers, your schools, all of that crap. All of that was backfilled because there was money to be made. Here came, you know, here came Mr. Haney and the corporate machines that wanted to come in there and win the contracts to do all the things. Because, you know, war is a profitable thing from a corporation viewpoint, especially if your doctrine is that you're going to do nation state building, you're going to replenish you're the, the battlefield that you destroyed and you're going to spread democracy at some point in time that may have made sense. I'm not sure that makes any sense in the 21st century. Yeah. It's all about the effective use of soft power, asymmetrical warfare, the right alliances, the right deterrent, and certainly defending your own homeland and prioritizing that we, we keep getting back to it. And it's just like domestic policy, like healthcare where, you know, it's not about all oh, some sort of a uh, holistic, um, uh, not holistic, but um, magnanimous approach to uh, helping the poor and needy in health. No, it's about empowering uh, the insurance cartel with the Medicare Medicaid contracts. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's the same thing with foreign policy. We're not guided by strategic vision. It's all by um, corporate interests. And there's certain like no-nos. Oh, you can't mess with Turkey or cut. Oh, no, no. Oh, you can't stop funding the Lebanese armed forces. <laughs> like, could, could you imagine what the, the instability that will happen? I mean, and they put out all this stuff. And, and it's, by the way, it's the same language they use with healthcare. I remember the instability in the insurance market. I'm like, dude, it already is as unstable <laughs> as it can get. Um, you know, we got to fix that rather than saying if you don't pump more into Obamacare, then it's going to become unstable. That's the deterrent they always use. And I think what Trump has started to show, and I wish you know they would double down on it, is if we would just start changing policies, I, I, I would imagine that so many more options would open up for us. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we're the only country in the world that goes onto the battlefield, fights with you know, one hand tied behind our back and then spends 10 times as much on the post fight as we spent <laughs> on the fight itself, only to find out 17 years later that we haven't changed a thing. We've spent a lot of money, but you still got the Taliban running around. I mean, if, if you want to deal with Afghanistan, you go in there, you pummel that place 18 years ago. And then, by the way, Dan, you knock out the Pakistani ISI because they're one of your biggest culprits in the whole area. And I, it, I can't stand the guys. And, and I know some guys have had to work with them, FBI buddies and whatnot. But send the right message. If you send the right message, you know, the, the Russians at some point in time had to send the message to the Chechen rebels. And they sat back with artillery units and leveled Grozny. <laughs> I mean, that was the message that they sent. And so uh, this nation state building and we've got to do this and we've got to rebuild their schools. Let them grow their opium. 
Let them do whatever they're doing with their little, you know, their drug industry. But when you truly threaten our country, here we come. It's not going to be pretty. And we're leaving. We're not spending a yep. dime on you. And we're not going to make all your little fiefdom guys rich because we think we bought your loyalty for the next 12 hours. You know, the amount of money we spent on warlords over there. Was oh, just my God. Buying them off. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 that's not policy. That's not poli- that that's corporations driving what we do. It's so sad. Again, on the 74th anniversary of, of V Day, coming full circle, um, Patton. You think of General Patton, uh, Curtis LeMay. You know, in Japan, they knew what it took. They understood the threat doctrine of the enemy. Went full force. We need to get back to those days. We need to get back to those days. And the more we're like that, the the less often we're going to have to use it. And then we don't have time today, but we're going to have to do a whole show on this. I know we promised that. There's China looming in the background. And if we don't get our policy straight with regard to the rest of the world, if we don't demonstrate that we are willing to fight for ourselves, but not for other people and their causes, what message does that send to China? And that that that's, I think, really uh, um, what we have to prepare for next time. I wanted to get to that, but we, we're out of time. Colonel, um, thanks for this briefing. A lot to unpack. Guys, listen to the show two, three times. Take notes. We are going to have the Colonel on as a regular guest now, kind of in, in lieu of our Foreign Policy Friday uh, segments. Um, Colonel, any any final words before we sew it up? Well, yeah. I mean, everyone needs to realize that the Israeli government and especially the Israeli people are paying a pretty terrible price night right now because someone is holding them back. And you can only do that so long. And then the consequences, once they lash out, if that's what you're scared of, uh, the Israelis are not going to live the way they are living right now forever. Something's going to break. So you can either control the break, have a controlled crash, or you can just let the disaster overwhelm you and something has to give uh, th- this one last week was just amazing to me and I, I you and i kept talking that was it it just blew me away that you can do that those guys and girls in those brigades that are running up to the wires sitting there and going back that's only going to work so much longer and you're going to have such morale issues you're going to have the people of southern israel marching on their capital uh, that can't go on no, exactly. And then and then you have the people in the north as well, um, with the Hezbos, uh, you know, and their and their assets too. So you could always potentially have a two front war at at any given time. Yep. Well, I think that day's coming. It's just do you control when that day is? Exactly. Exactly. Well, anyway, we're gonna have you on within the next couple of weeks to talk about China, some other things. Um we laid down a marker here on a lot of issues tying together kind of five, six, seven observations here all in one. Let me know what your theory is, your comments, concerns, or questions, questions you want me to ask the Colonel offline. We could talk about on the show with and or without him um, in the coming days. Email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. Um, you could tweet me at rmconservative. And by the way, if you really want an educated view on what's going on, you could follow C- Colonel Dan at Colonel Dan 11 on twitter thanks for joining us as always colonel thank you guys for listening god bless y'all this has been another episode of a conservative conscience 